but I do think that the way they're presented very much plays into this dynamic that the, the comedian is the powerful figure, the slick, cool, in-control one, and the audience are kind of looking up at them and going, wow, what a glamorous rock star right. position they're in. And I think it's so much more interesting to watch somebody a, a bit pathetic or a bit stupid or somebody not quite know what they're doing or who's not quite doing it right, right and the audience are, are laughing at this idiot trying to do something and sort of failing. Like right. The idea of putting on a show where you try and express something and don't quite manage it I think is really interesting. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Juz. Hello, Juz. Hello, everyone. And Dave. <laughs> Mainly Dave. Mainly me now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely a, an interesting thing to like think about the two. Yeah, we're having a conversation together. Yeah, that at some point people will. But other listen people are to listening you. to. But, you. Um, yeah, mm. and as somebody who 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 performs, you're probably a little bit more aware of that audience out there I than sometimes you, some of my guests. I think you just have to try and sort of. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. That's uh, that's me accepting a coffee rather than directing anything to any other sort of audience that exists at home. That's right, and we're in the um, Candid Cafe in Angel to explain background sound. That gives me a nice opportunity yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. say that. Uh, which I, I only know because of you. We did the, the character meeting here yeah. and then recorded that thing down there. I've now been here twice since then without you, I'm wow. afraid. I'm sorry to say that I've taken it on in my own sort of personal life as well. Well, that's how just I... Just a big fan. That's how I experienced this place, to be honest. Like, somebody brought me here and then, since then, I've arranged so many meetings Yeah, here. yeah. It's like... It's like a one of those semi-secret places. Yeah, I've tried not to tell too many people, exactly. particularly people in comedy about it. You know, any kind of industry that involves sitting and meeting in cafes, the minute you try and tell somebody about something nice, you lose it and it's gone. Right. So I've mostly just been telling family members about it and people who don't have anything to do with any of that. It's the same with, do you know the Scottish Storytelling Centre in Edinburgh? Oh yes. I love that place, mainly, well mainly just because it's lovely and the people there are really nice and they do little storytelling things for kids and everything, but mainly like, no fringe people know it's there, and the very few people I've taken there are always really amazed that it exists. So that's my favourite. I'll oh, just put it out on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah, we've put both these locations uh, on a podcast yeah. now. <laughs> that's a shame. Well, there's that. That's that, that dream if, ended. If, if you're listening, please, please. Please don't come to Don't go locations. to either of those if you're going to sort of crowd it out and spoil it. But if you like quiet, interesting places, then you're allowed to go there and, and be nice. Right. Don't bring parties. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. Okay. Don't, <laughs> oh, bring, don't come in groups of ten. So, yeah, I guess you'll, you'll be more aware of people listening because you are in performance than some of the people that I talk to. Hmm. But hopefully we will we'll be able to forget all about it. I think so, yeah. You're sort of aware of it for a while when you start any kind of thing like this and then right. gradually you get just invested in what you're talking about and then it's all right. Right. I mean that's the beauty of of long form. That's one of the reasons mm. I, I quite like long form, although I know that, that I'm not necessarily, maybe I'm not in a minority, but I certainly don't feel like I'm in a majority of liking long form. Yeah, really. yeah. But uh, one of the things I like about it is that, yeah, it, it goes on so long that you. Both yeah, you actually get to understand forget, the the, the process of the people having that conversation and the way that the places their minds are going and things, rather than just like here are some choice edits and some bits right. that we picked out that we think people will like. I think it's much nicer that way. Right. Well, it's an interesting thing as well. It's actually quite hard to edit down a conversation unless you're taking out sound bites. Yeah, because it has a, a natural flow. Yeah, so if you cut yeah. one bit, then 
it, it, it would be a non sequitur. Yeah, two yeah. Things and and there's always going to be kind of references back to things. Right. That, just the way conversations go. Right. Is it such a sort of a loose thing that if you start trying to kind of edit it down for a listener, you lose every sense of what actually makes it function as a dialogue in the right. first place, I guess. And often like mistakes or something or something yeah. that someone says that I might like want to, to edit out because I don't want them to look silly. I can't because that mistake facilitates yeah, their becomes whole part area of, of the yeah, conversation yeah, yeah. That, that, that is kind of important to keep in. So the first question I ask everybody is, how do you know me? So I know you because of stand-up tragedy, I think, mainly, which I first became aware of, I think, at the Fringe in 2013, I think was the first time I did it, and it was because Matthew Hyten did it quite a lot and recommended it as a gig that was that existed up at the Fringe and was worth doing. And I think it took me a while to really kind of understand what stand-up tragedy was or how it functioned as a kind of an interesting space to, to do things in that because it was recommended to me as, oh, this is a place where you can go and do it as a comedy gig, I kind of thought that it was very much a themed comedy night built around the idea of you talk about something vaguely tragic or something vaguely sad and you go and do comedy about that and that's it. And I think it took me a few of them to realise the kind of the multidisciplinary elements of it and the idea of it existing as this space for people to do basically whatever they wanted and it, for it to be a kind of a thing about storytelling and spoken word and poetry and that kind of thing and for me to get to the point where I felt happier doing it without going there and feeling like I had to do comedy and right. I had to be the comedian on the bill and realise that it was more of a space for people to just share whatever they wanted to share with people It's on hiatus at the moment mm. Santa Tragedy, but, but I do hope to bring it back and, and comedians are welcome to be funny yeah like that is welcome yeah but the thing is there's a couple of weird things for comedians to get their heads around I think like if they choose to be funny they probably won't get as many laughs yeah they won't be received in the same way right I guess, because they're, they're following a serious thing and they're making yeah. before a serious thing and, and the audience and the people there haven't, haven't come them. for comedy as well the right. fact that like they're not going there thinking this will be a night that I'll laugh at that might occasionally go into tragic territory like they go there as a kind of an arts collective thing yeah, where it exists so. to showcase so. a lot of different yeah. kind of art forms so the the thing that the audience is looking to get out of it I think is a completely different thing to what you'd want to get out of it if you went there with your comedian brain on which I think is why it took me a few before I suddenly kind of went oh I understand the mindset of this night now so I remember those first couple I did in Edinburgh I can't remember what I did but just remember finding it very sort of odd and going this is a really weird vibe to this gig and it's really interesting and I can't quite get my head around it yet and I think it was one of the ones back in London in the Hackney Attic or something where I felt like I'd started to engage with it in the right way I mean, I, or, I, or in a better way. I mean, I always enjoyed what you did at Stand Up Tragedy, but definitely as as the night went on and we kept booking you, mm. you definitely changed your sort of sets from yeah. you know, Jos Norris comedy to Jos Norris exploring. Just trying to exp- yeah, yeah, and I think that I think it happened at a really similar time that I was doing that in general anyway within what I did and trying to think of it less as like. I'm going to write a comedy show for Edinburgh or whatever to just, I'm going to make a show of whatever is in my head. So I think that my getting to grips with stand-up tragedy as a thing really happened at the same time as my trying to take the kind of things I was making to a different place as well 
So I think it's very caught up in that for me as, a, as an interesting place that I went to to try and refine that and to get better at doing things that came from a different place, I think. Right. I mean, one of my favourite things you did, I think, for Stand Up Tragedy, uh, I don't know if you remember this, was... Uh, we had a actually I'm sure you'll remember this. We had a night based around the theme of Greek tragedy. Oh, is this Archimedes in the bath? This is yeah, right. that was really that was really fun. And, and that, I can't remember why I did that or where it came from. It was such a weird night because it kind of it, it was a perfect storm in terms of lack of audience, and it mm. was the first day of the World Cup or some yeah. sporting event that I had it wasn't no awful though. Of. There were a good like mm. uh, it was there was a decent sized there, audience, there was, but it's, was, it was in that huge room in the Dog Star where it just right. feels so cavernous if you don't have. You know, and also I had huge amount of people. I had Andy Zoltzman as the, oh, wow. he was the opener weirdly because that's, I what, forgot often, about that's that. often what happens if you're quite a big name and you agree to do a small night yeah then you it's say, you'll do it and then I run off to your other one at the beginning yeah, and I understand yeah. why people ask that and I don't hold that against them at all but I definitely kind of was like I felt like having Andy Zoltzman that's going to be an easy sell yeah but yeah of course Andy Zoltzman's audience are also going to be into the sport yeah so it's kind of a, it yeah, was kind of like really, anyone who would have come for yeah for was Andy then lost probably was lost for the sport so it was a weird night in that respect but then also there was lots of kind of surreal moments in that yeah. night which was I that liked. the same night that Michael Brunstrom that's, hammered grapes to a picture correct. of Justin Bieber's face that's yeah, right. that's that's great. Right. that was right, right, right. lovely, lovely and then there was set. also this guy who I didn't really know very well who like he did songs in Greek but he had like a subtitles held up by something yeah. else so there was like a lot of like really weird, weird stuff. stuff going on that yeah. night I, I liked that um, and there but, wasn't much of the stuff that you that I then kind of got more familiar with at the Hackney Attic ones right, there wasn't quite sort of sincere stuff. storytelling and, funny, and, and I guess it's that because it's the different theme each time it's harder to do something very sincere and kind of affecting about Greek tragedy and right. it's just not something I guess that will have affected people in their lives as much right I mean we did so have some that yeah, night. I think there must like have been. A, there, bit. Was a, there was a, a guy called um, David D. Morgan, who's a, a, a spoken word guy, yeah, who was name. doing like a, a musical version of Medea told from. Yeah. Like, that was like some seriously yeah, serious yeah. lines in between. But that kind of just, but I guess it just added it, to the surrealness yeah. of everything. And I think it just feels easier when you're given a topic like that that feels quite remote from your real life to go for an absurdist idea rather than something like the Tragic Holidays or, or Tragic Summer or whatever, some of the other ones that I did, where you feel more like, oh, I can actually engage with that in with a real kind of autobiographical thing. Right. Although I think um, I did like that, though, the, the piece you did for Greek tragedy, because it did mm. span that kind of... It did yeah, have a certain really element of, of autobiography as well. There was a certain element of you, at least... Being knowledgeable about a subject and knowing yeah, a little bit things yeah. about it, but I mean, also the the night ended with you uh, in a bath cap yeah, and shouting Eureka at people, right? And it, like it was the, the weirdest end of a night I've done because you were still on stage. <laughs> oh, that was it. Yeah, I couldn't get you know, off stage because I was really it was wet. Just awkward. And <laughs> yeah, you were like yeah. In, a, in, a, in a tiny little thing that was supposed to be a bath but was too small to be yeah, a bath. Yeah, yeah. So it was just like, me crouched in it. Right, just and in you a were singing common people. And, right, right. That's right. And yeah, yeah, exactly. And that we was were, a lovely night. I was trying to get the audience to sing along with common mm. people as well, and I was very frustrated. <laughs> and I just couldn't lead the stage because I'd forgotten audience, to bring a towel. Right, and, but also I, I thought that common people would be like, everyone would know that <laughs> yeah. song. I, you know, everyone does know that song, I, I do think, but, but singing along to it, like, yeah, like maybe yeah, people felt appropriative of... as well. Like, no one wants to go, yes, I'm a common person. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, it was, an, it was an, a, a, very a pleasingly awkward ending. And it's it, lovely. The, it's uh, really fun. The, a photograph of it came up the other day on Facebook. Uh, yeah, on I think Facebook I saw that. I was like, it was three years oh, ago or two I years ago or that. something like that. I remember that night when, when <laughs> Joss was pretending to be in a bath in front of me. So, yeah, so 
the second question I ask everybody, which I guess people will already have an idea about your answer to this, but still, your answer is what I want rather than their idea, um, is what do you do now? Um, now, I... I've I've been weirdly negotiating this question really specifically within the last month or so in that you get back from Edinburgh as a comedian you do Edinburgh and then so I guess comedian is the short answer but I hate that word I really really hate it which is why I process it whenever I come back from Edinburgh because you've kind of done a you've done a year of your life and it culminates in doing a show for a month that you give to people and then you come back and work out what's next and I feel like an an inherent part of that is trying to work out well, what is it that I do then? If I'm now trying to work out what I'm going to make for the next year, what is it at the centre of what I do that all that needs to come back to? And I've realised I've grown more and more unhappy with the word comedy or the word comedian because... And with, like, just a lot of words in general because of... uh, my housemate is a theatre maker and makes really interesting kind of solo uh, conceptual theatre pieces... Um, and again, they're really interesting, but uh, and a part of me always wonders, I wonder what it's like to call yourself a theatre maker rather than a comedian and say that's what you do. But again, you're still tying yourself to a thing and to a particular set of criteria that people expect. So I now just say that I make stuff, or at least from about September to Christmas, I just say that I make stuff. And then normally around January, ideas will have started emerging and then I'll probably start saying I'm a comedian again because you always go back to what you're both what you're comfortable making and what you're confident in making, which is that everybody knows what they're good at and you gravitate towards things where you feel you work well. But also audiences know what you do yeah, as well. Like yeah, comedian yeah. clearly gives audiences an idea of what to expect. Yeah. Whereas if you sort of say, it's a thing. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah then you start to, yeah. yeah. I think when it comes to actually marketing the thing that you've, you've got, right. you do need to be a bit more specific. Yeah. Um, but I think around this period of time when I'm just sort of generating ideas, I try very much to think of it as don't try and make a comedy idea or make a comedy show or a comedy script. Uh, or make a theatre piece or a performance art piece or whatever it is. Just try not to call it something until you know what it is and it's emerged. And I mean, all, it'll always mostly be the same sort of thing. Like, all my Edinburgh shows are the same tonally and they've got the same sort of stuff in them every year. So there's, there hasn't been a kind of a massive overhaul of what I do. But there is always a three- or four-month period every year where I just really t- struggle with trying to define myself in terms of... <laughs> What do you do? So at the moment, I'm, I'm a maker of stuff. Right, is my my go-to answer. For right, that. I mean, because you you definitely like because I because I've been your your Facebook friend for a few years, and like every year after you come back from from Edinburgh, there yeah. does seem to be a kind of existential <laughs> process yeah. that you yeah. go through. Well, I'm I glad like, people have picked up on that. I like that, I, I try and project it a lot. Well, I like that you that you document that that you that yeah. you say you know this is the way this is the way I'm feeling like because. A lot of your your humour is kind of there's a surrealness to it. There's a kind mm. of there's prop elements to it. I mean, yeah. not to say you're a prop comedian. No, but, but I sort of a, go there. There's and there's, ob- a, there's objects that are wave around and, and live art and theatre definitely are yeah. words that you could easily describe a lot of what you do as. Um, but there's also like since I've known you, since watching your 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 comedy kind of developing, there's also a sort of sense of of, of yourself that you're you're more and more yeah. trying to put into it. Like when I first came across you, you were doing more character stuff. Yeah, that was yeah, 2013. I did um, a character show that was very much it was just me being stupid for an hour. So right. it was me in a bunch of different outfits, doing different accents, and playing with the audience and telling rubbish jokes, yeah. and it was really fun. 
but I think in hindsight it really didn't do much in terms of getting ideas out of my head. They were all kind of quite silly surface ideas of me prattling about and being stupid, which I think is still my top priority with a lot of it, but I just realised that I'm much happier trying to do that as myself and to make myself into the idiot character rather right. than putting on a morph suit and saying, now I'm this guy. Um, so I think it was trying to turn that same sort of lens onto myself and to put more autobiography into it. So there is now a lot of... Like, a lot of what I do is actually stand-up. As much as I kind of get uncomfortable with the idea of stand-up and I feel it's a bit... It, it, it's a bit too similar across the board and that's why I kind of get uncomfortable with the word comedian because it sparks off certain things in people's heads. But a lot of what I do is that and it's just telling stories about my life or it's... Uh, anecdotes about my past or things that happened to me that year or whatever but it's trying to fuse all that together with the pratting about and the character stuff and the prop stuff and then maybe I tried to put a couple of more sort of theatrical bits into this year's show and I think it's just trying to fuse all that together in a way that you're just churning stuff out of your head every year pretty much and trying to reflect on yourself as the idiot character right but I think that's, that's what it all is but that's an interesting thing I think that, that I like and enjoy about your work though is that when you you talk you know when you're talking about the idiot character mm. and there's there's a certain kind of element to a lot of what your comedy does which is like me, Jos Norris, doesn't know how to be a human being. Yeah, I don't yeah. know how to feel. I don't yeah. know how to interact. <laughs> yeah. Those kinds of things that I think are very relatable, uh, and I certainly feel those yeah. things too as a, as, a, as, a, as a human being who finds it hard to be a human myself. But at the same time, <clears throat> there's a kind of... Underneath that, there, are, there is this kind of well of feelings, which I think, you know, you talking about these things on Facebook is a little yeah. bit counterintuitive. If you've seen you doing a stand-up yeah. set about how you can't feel, and then you kind of come back from Edinburgh and there's a, re- yeah, you know, it's a really, really long. heartfelt... <clears throat> yeah. And, you know, it's not that that heartfelt piece of writing doesn't have a few jokes about how you're not yeah. a human in, in it, embedded in it. Yeah. Of course it does, but the... The takeaway part that I I get when I read that is not uh, Joss doesn't feel things, but that Joss feels things quite deep. Yeah, and then I think it's that struggle to try and um, express them in a way that doesn't feel exploitative, I guess. In that, like, I think, like, what I really dislike is when you see somebody trying to make something and you get it a lot in stand-up shows um, where, and it's become a even to to acknowledge this trope has become a kind of a hack trope in itself but the idea of the stand-up show that then rests on a kind of pivotal emotional moment and there's this kind of, the 40 minute mark of and then I learned this, or this happened to me this year or whatever Um, and and my my main problem with it always is it's always played as a revelation within the show, like you always get to about, about 40 minutes in and the the comedian will go, and I guess what I realised was, and whenever I see that, I think, but you're saying this every day for a month, so it's not it's not a revelation to you now in this moment because right. these are the same words that you do every single day, and it's actually quite a calculated thing of you're going to play the audience's emotions at this point by fall by leaning on the sentiment of some kind of sincere emotional thing, and I'm not saying that whatever they're talking about isn't. Uh, kind of relevant or, or worthy of exploration. But I think particularly within the context of comedy, it's really hard to work in those things and those sort of well of feelings that you want to express and explore in your work. It's hard to do it without it feeling cynical or without it feeling calculated. So I think that's why in my stuff it's always an undercurrent of... I do have this weird kind of breakdown every September where I go, what the hell am I doing and how do I express that in my work? And then when you see the end result, it's very much something that's not quite touched on, but is there underneath this right. more kind of 
awkward uh, stupidity of it. And so it, I think it leans on sentiment, or I, I try to do it in a way that it leans on sentiment so that you can tell there's feeling there, but it never tries to tap into it in a way that feels exploitative of the emotion itself. Yeah, I, I mean, think. I think that's a good description of it. I mean, one of the things I think is nice about that kind of... Yeah, that, that, that well that's kind of there but not really touched on mm. is that it kind of does fit with the kind of way you're describing yourself in the world. Like, yeah. that one of the things you're often talking about is um, difficulty in expressing yourself or communicating yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. And so it, it would be fake to then say, well, yeah. this is who I am. Yeah, and, I know and to absolutely have, everything yeah, about to have it. that moment where you yeah, try yeah. and sum up your sort of emotional experience of the last year or whatever. I think it's impossible to do that because that's a thing that's continually changing even while you're doing a show, while you're performing and everything. Your state of where you are emotionally is always going to be different to what it was 10 seconds ago. Or right. So you can't really try and sum it up in your work that much. But you, what you can do is try and suggest something about the difficulty of expressing it. That's right. That's potentially interesting and you're also not afraid of silliness and, nah, and, that's and, the best bit and that's not just like that's not just something that I see in you that's kind of a, a thing that is happening in a, a kind of a, a whole area I think of, yeah. of, of comedy yeah, really certainly in the UK mind. certainly in London yeah. I mean to a certain extent most of the people I could I could pinpoint as being similar in their kind of aesthetic of silliness with seriousness yeah. mixed in are all probably people you know yeah uh, I think so I think there's a really interesting circle of people who are very kind of unselfconscious and very daft at the moment and yet by doing it manage to say a huge amount about themselves like we mentioned Michael Brunstrom earlier who was yes, on a, um, exactly. uh, that Greek tragedy night and Michael's I've always been a huge fan of Michael but his most recent show is really lovely in that it's uh it's completely stupid and it's him it's about the Haywain the Constable painting yeah and he does a load of very stupid sketches loosely connected to the Haywain uh, one of them is he plays Noel Edmonds and it turns out that Noel Edmonds is a cello really just nonsense right. like that uh, and he said after he finished writing it he then went and researched Constable which for a start I love the fact that you would write an entire show about Constable of the Hayway and only when you finish writing it actually bother to go oh I wonder who he was right. like, again I love the way his brain works that way um, and found out all this stuff about Constable's relationship with his dad and with fame and with art that really closely mirrored Michael's own opinions on him. So I think he's one of my favourite examples at the moment of people who just indulge in being stupid and then once they've taken a step back from it and looked at what they've made, they've gone, actually, this says such a huge amount about how I feel and and what's going on in my head that I didn't realise because I was just too busy being an idiot. Right, I've not seen that show, but it's I saw great. the one before it, The Golden Age of Steve. That was great. And that I loved and like was one of the most emotional uh, shows I saw, I think, in Edinburgh that year. That and that, that Mark Dean Quinn and uh, Sophie Hagen, who's like the yeah, polar I missed Sophie's show. Um, of that. Like, she is the kind of comedian who does, like, the, the, the 40 minute. Yeah, or, but uh, I think. This is why I learned. But it's not as simple as that. So yeah, I've not wanna, seen her show. And but, I also. But, the, but she does it so well. And it's, it's you know, storytelling, personal comedy yeah. is also great. I think um, you can, you can cry. I very much wouldn't want to say that, like, the idea of doing a purely autobiographical stand up show that explores your emotions is inherently cynical or inherently manipulative. I wouldn't want right, to say that at all. It's right. certainly something I struggle with. I struggle to make a show that I feel does that in a sincere way. Um, and I think when you're a, a 
a really excellent storyteller and you're excellent at crafting the material and understanding the emotions it creates, then it is something you can make work. And I do think Sophie's good at that. I mean, do you think it's something to do with sincerity? Is it like the, the, you being sincere on stage, does that feel weird to you? Yeah, I guess it's, um, it's tricky. There's, there's, I think when you've tried for a while to do comedy just for the sake of doing comedy, because for a while I just wanted to be a stand-up for a bit. When I was at uni I started doing comedy and thought... I'll just have a go at, at doing the stand-up thing because that sort of looks cool. And then gradually realised I wasn't that interested in that element of it, of the kind of doing the glamorous stand-up life because what that actually equates to is the whole sort of club circuit and driving around motorways and all that kind of thing. And right. I thought, oh, this is horrible. It's actually not glamorous. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's really unpleasant. <laughs> but I realised there was something more kind of emotional or more sort of creatively interesting that I was getting out of it, so went in a slightly different direction. And I guess when you started from that point it's trained you to look for laughter and, tr- and to find laughter in the room and that becomes the currency of what you're doing and it then means that sincerity feels really difficult because laughter isn't the kind of the, the natural response to it when you see somebody talking very sincerely about something they care about so I think that makes it difficult on stage because your brain has already trained itself to always be looking for the next laugh and it's really hard to jettison that and go just try and explore an emotion on stage so then I think that's why I've then gone to the point of trying to find ways to turn that into an absurdist thing, to take an idea and explore it on stage and try and do it in a way that still gives voice to it personally, but that translates into a kind of a surreal thing on stage that creates laughter. So it's this weird midpoint between actually expressing something and just being funny for the sake of being funny, where you try and make them collide. But I think that's probably why I find it difficult to actually stand on stage and go, and I guess what I feel about this is X, Y, Z, because then suddenly the laughter's gone and you feel like you're, you've jumped into a different genre and it's really hard to then make sense of it in your brain. Right. I sort of almost did it this year in my show because my granddad died this year and he was 96 years old, so it's basically not that tragic a thing it's um, it was very sad and we all got upset about it but also he was nearly 100 years old so right. you can there's no way you can talk about it was too soon or what a terrible waste or anything it's just a very old man died uh, so I tried to make that into the tragedy of the show so that you have this sincere moment that you see a lot and the, the kind of the cliche is the dead dad show and people talking about that. And I tried to explore the idea of trying to get some comedy out of trying to do exactly the same thing as a dead dad show with the same level of sincerity, but applying it to a hundred-year-old man where the tragedy just doesn't quite fit. And you try and talk about it as that, oh, and then my granddad died right. and he was a hundred years old and I was really upset because of this and this and this. So trying to explore that emotion sincerely, because it was really sad and it did really affect me, but while being aware of the absurdity of excessively mourning this incredibly old man. So I think that's the closest I've ever come to actually sincerely being emotional on stage, but only by being aware that it wasn't quite natural or it wasn't quite earned. But, I mean, that's part of it as well. Like, you can't really do a dead dad show unless you've got a dead yeah, dad. Yeah, this is the thing. I mean, so the idea know, of the, trying the, to satirise I mean, I'm all is, for um, dead dad shows, actually. Yeah. I mean, certainly I think that it's... I know what you mean. It's become a trope. And, I, th- I think and what people mean by the by the trope is is very much that thing of trying to take a, a piece of very personal experience and translate it into a show right. that leans on sentiment like that. So I don't think it means you have to talk about your dead dad. No, no, no. But also, a part of it very much it wouldn't be okay to do like that you're if manipulated it wasn't. as well. Like it's once you know that there are, that someone's doing something 
deliberate. Yeah. Like, it's like when you when you're watching a, a, a program and the sad music comes up. Yeah. And it's kind of like the comedy equi- equivalent of that. Yeah. Like, there are certain beats that. People yeah. Do, where like, you go, oh, oh I'm now right, aware I'm being played being in this particular way. And I think and most I wonder whether people are not doing that. Like, yeah. like Sophie doesn't do that. Yeah, like, yeah. And I think it's also caught up in the fact that comedy is supposed to be, or we all think it, a sort of an autobiographical exchange in that if you went to see a one-man theatre piece and again this is why I get funny about labelling different genres because I don't really know what it means but if you went to see a one-man theatre show and there was a bit that was very emotional and really lent on stuff on sentiment and really affected you you'd probably leave thinking it was great and going wow what a powerful piece and what a load of emotions um, because you're aware of the artifice and the craft of it but there's something about doing it in a stand-up show that... it feels a bit more unsavoury because you feel like you're supposed to be having this direct exchange with the performer. So for them to suddenly do this quite calculated thing about how they feel, suddenly you're questioning what the nature of the exchange is and you go, well, do you actually feel like that or are you just saying that today because this is the bit of your show where you say that? Or what is going on? Well, it's the, it's so navigating the, that is really hard. It's the artifice of it as well. I remember, like, it's interesting talking to you about this because there was at Edinburgh when Stand Up Tragedy books comedians. We often, if we like them, we book book them for a few a few a few gigs, and you did a few gigs with us, and I also saw your show. And I remember it wasn't it wasn't just you. Bridie Lee Kennedy was also yep. doing that. Uh, did a few, uh, and both of you had bits in your in your sets that you did with us where you made a mistake and then you pulled that mistake into the into the humor and made it really funny and the first time that you both did it like that was a really spontaneous feeling for me is in the audience like oh there's been mistakes but then the next time you came on you did the same thing and I was like oh hang on they deliberately incorporated that mistake into their set and so yeah. it's no longer a mistake now it's a really it's a deliberate it's a really challenging thing <laughs> that I hate whenever it whenever it occurs and it was the same this year there was a bit of my show which initially it went wrong in a preview the fact that it went wrong became a very funny thing and then you incorporated that and I realised this year that the only way to incorporate those ideas because at the end of the day you're sort of you're looking for for laughs and then as well if you're if what you're doing is trying to put yourself on stage as this idiot character who gets things wrong then the idea of building in this deliberate mistake becomes a thing that that layers on top of that so it all sort of works but I I feel so uncomfortable doing that on other occasions that this year the only way I was able to make sense of that in my head was to after that bit had happened to reveal that it's a deliberate mistake that happens (laughs) every day and then turn that into an extra kind of dimension of it just because again there's that part of you it's, I think it's something to do with doing things for a month that makes you right. so aware of what you're doing. And, I think, and I th- every day you realise the same words. Are, well, not every day. You know, there's always variation and some bits that change depending on where the audience goes. But there's also certain bits of the show that are always going to happen word for word the same. And when you do it for such a long time, you become very aware of what each of those words does. And I've become more and more kind of... just struggling a bit in my head with the, the moments that that do deliberately make things go wrong or whatever and I've felt like I now have to address that and go I'm going to be honest with you that happens like that every day and and this is why and this is why and then that becomes another part of the joke yeah but I mean I think it also I mean I don't mean to say that either you or Bridie shouldn't do that no like, no it's, it's just a, like a, it's interesting you know, when people realise it when audiences right. clock onto it and go oh I see that's what you're doing because the trick is that an audience member wants to feel like this is a thing that they're seeing that is only yeah. happening in that moment yeah and, and that's they want that you 
you know, they're entering into a contract with the with the audience, yeah. with the com- comedian of like, we're both going to pretend this is spontaneous, <laughs> and then like, if you happen to see a show a couple of times, that's yeah. only when you can. I see think the that's why I, I changed it this year, in that I kind of realised that first you tell yourself that you're building a show and you want the show to be enjoyed in that moment by an audience member and to create everything you can that makes it enjoyable for them. And then I did realise that uh, on the off chance that you do get people who come back and they see those sort of deliberate mistakes happening, it's almost like there's a breach in trust there and they go, oh, the thing I thought your show was is slightly different. Right. There's little things about it that actually show the kind of the cracks in it and the, and the extent to which it's been crafted that way. And then I felt sort of uncomfortable with the idea that people would come back and go away with a completely different understanding of it, which is why now I've tried to build it in that anybody watching that show understands that it happens that way every single day. And so it means you leave, I think, with a more kind of complete understanding of it or of the process of it or of where it came from. So, I mean, at this point in your life, you're kind of like, your your creative life is quite circular, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like every year you're... yeah. Preparing for Edinburgh, yeah. and then you, take and then you do Edinburgh, Edinburgh, and then you come home and go, oh, that's that's that then. I mean, have you got? Have you currently got a day job? I know you've got day, had day jobs in the past. I uh, so currently I do uh, children's birthday parties at the weekends. I do about one day a week where I uh, do magic for children, and then I just sort of do other whatever other kind of little bits and pieces are thrown at me. So uh, a lot of that is awful, like kind of corporate videos and things like that. Because I would act as well, so I do sort of comedy acting for little kind of. Ab- Adverts or commercial bits and pieces, and that seems to be where most of the money is. I think. So I think if you can get just about enough money together by doing something a bit sort of soulless and uh, commercial, that takes up you know a week or two, and then that frees up a whole load of time to go off and do things that you really want to do. So that tends to be where most of my money comes from. Well, that's good because it seems like what you're doing at the moment is you know everything. Like, yeah. You know, yeah. You're, you're doing like. Uh, web series you're doing like podcasts yeah. like my podcast yeah, but also yeah. another podcast at the yeah. same time I mean which we should go into all of these things that you're doing but like you, you, you're definitely like you know when, I, when I'm looking at my Facebook feed like to feel like who, I'm, who am I envious of <laughs> in some ways you are that person because, oh, that's very kind because you know I'm, I'm, a, I'm struggling as a freelancer I am yeah. doing lots of cool stuff I'm not I'm not trying to deny it but at the same time it just seems like from the outside and it won't be the reality your life won't be like this but, yeah. but from, from the outside it looks like oh Jos is like living this life where anytime <laughs> yeah. he has this idea he yeah, just does I, it I'm able it to make it it's it's, I think it's just um, it's trying to work out what your priority in the basic I got really lucky last year and did a particular advert that had a ridiculous amount of money attached to it and basically <laughs> freed up a good year and a half of my time which was incredible and it's nearly nearly all gone oh no there's, there's, there's bits of it but it meant that then you have to kind of work out what your priority is in that I think a lot of people sort of looking to you know loads of people want to try and buy a house and would put money towards (laughs) a deposit on a house and all that kind of thing Uh, and there are all kinds of things that you can do with that and I feel like my main priority in terms of what I want to do is to have the time to just create any idea that I have that feels worth pursuing Um, play yeah basically yeah and I feel like there's my hope is that I'm still just about young enough that maybe another windfall could happen and then I could buy a house or something but I feel like I mean that's still vaguely on my mind is that probably ought to be something that you're supposed to do at some point in your life yeah, but, the, but equally I just don't think it's going to happen but it's not the same as it used to be a, wind, no. a windfall doesn't really cut it yeah, for a yeah, house yeah it's now, not really so, yeah. so you might as well put yeah, it that's, that's what I thought is um, my brother said it really well I said um, you feel when you have things like that and you've got a bit of time freed up because you've got lucky with some money or whatever you feel like you ought to put it all towards one 
specific project or one big thing or you ought to fund one massive thing and he said but your your life is the project in general that's what we're all doing is we're trying to fund being able to continue using our time to do to do the things we want and that's basically become my guiding thing with it in that I'd feel terrible I think if I'd spent the last year literally just sort of messing around and doing nothing yeah but I think the fact that I tried to very much use it to structure my time to be able to make a lot of stuff and to make a few short films and right, do exactly. Edinburgh again so and to do these second, podcasts. And you're making a second Yeah, I'm doing film? my second actual sort of proper short. I've made a load of stuff for YouTube and things before, um, little sketches <laughs> yeah. and things, many of which are dreadful and some of which I'm really pleased with. Um, but this is my second sort of proper short film that's being made by people with a director and the, um, putting money into and location scouting and right, all that kind of right, thing right. and I think they're both being submitted to film festivals and things so I don't know if there's a formal definition of what constitutes a short film and what constitutes a YouTube sketch but whatever that formal thing is I've decided that this is the second one of those <laughs> Right. and that's about you know you know Robert Johnson the Robert Johnson myth yeah who met the devil at the yeah crossroads. yeah midnight so this is uh, about a, a modern a guy in the modern day played by me who's obsessed with Robert Johnson and decides to try and do the same thing meets the devil at a crossroads and sells his soul to him uh, and I won't spoil too much just because it kind of plays out but essentially the joke that I thought would be really funny to explore is the idea that you always imagine that if you if Robert Johnson does that it's an immediate trade over and he's immediately the best guitarist in the world but the idea of what if actually he just had to go to the devil's house one day every week for about two years and practice guitar with him <laughs> until he was really good so actually all he's got is the devil is now his guitar teacher right. uh, and that's the premise basically so it's me going to the devil's house and very slowly trying to become the best guitarist in the world and the friendship that sort of crops up as a result of that, <laughs> which I think is really fun. Um, so we're, we're working on that. Matthew Hyten's directing it, who we mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, and uh, David Mills is playing the devil, which I'm really pleased with. Uh, just because when I started writing it, my girlfriend, uh, Eleanor, who's a comedian as well, uh, just mentioned David Mills as somebody who'd... He's got that kind of classical style and that very sort of... Uh, slick look and that kind of thing he's always in a suit and he's always very kind of well groomed and things that he just looks exactly like what I had in mind for it and then the minute she said that I basically went and just wrote the part imagining him doing it so the fact that he's said yes is great just because it's lovely when you land the exact person that you really wanted for something right and you're in a sort of situation where there's almost like a there's an, ens- an ensemble available to you to a certain extent yeah, right? yeah. because I mean so I've 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 not watched the second series of The, the Girl Whisperer. Oh, no But worries. I've watched the first series and yeah. really loved it. And, th- and that's the problem. Once you like something, then you're like, oh, I really want to make the time. Yeah, to yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I, I did also watch um, a web series you did with someone else, I think, where it was about a kind of underneath... It was like an underground... Well, not underground, but it was like a comedy night. Oh, dumb, Shambles. Sh- right, yeah, right, right. yeah, that was and, a great And series. you were really funny in that. And, 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 and you know, you've got this kind of... As, as an actor, a lot of the things yeah. that you go towards are things that I enjoy, like the, the awkwardness of like, yeah, I, yeah. I guess kind of, you know, there's a kind of, it's, it's a cliche to say The Office now because The Office has become a yeah. whole set of new cliches that everyone's following. But once it was really um, yeah. new and yeah, exciting yeah. and the, you know, Ricky Gervais hadn't pissed me off as, a, <laughs> yeah. as, a, as an individual. Right. Yeah. Um, and I loved The Office. And, and, it was a great show. Right. And, really and, changed a lot of stuff. Right. And what you do, I think, is very much when you're, when you're acting, not necessarily in your com- you know, comedy, yeah. comedy, but like when you're acting, you, you've got a kind of delightful 
awkwardness in yeah, how you yeah. interact with everybody. Yeah. Um, which I think is, you know, which is one of the reasons why I cast you uh, in the show that I, in, in, a, in The Family Tree, which yeah. is that I loved that awkwardness. Although it was, in fact, my partner who suggested you first. I oh, really? Because um, she's always enjoyed you on stage too. Yeah. Yeah, so that's like the kind of acting sort of thing that you're bringing, bringing to the table, I think. But you're also, you've got like, the shambles thing you've got yeah. like you're a member of weirdos aren't yeah you? yeah like, weirdos does, does a bunch of stuff sort of during the it's kind of quite random when it occurs now it used to be a regular comedy night and we'd do a show every month and now it's just we do the panto every year where we do a big kind of stupid comedy show uh, that Adam Larter writes and it raises money for Great Ormond Street but it now weirdos just kind of pops up as a collective a couple of times during the year where right. we put on some kind of stupid show some weird... and then it disappears again right. and, and nobody really knows what it is kind of narrative but not narrative yeah they're I mean, mostly I mean they've kind of properly. they've settled now basically into that Adam will write a play and it's a the lineup changes a lot of the time but it's sort of whoever is available and, and write for it will be involved and there's a kind of a core group of people that will cycle through different versions of for different shows so yeah Adam Larter writes a play about something stupid or other and then we rehearse it a bit and people will throw in all their own ideas uh, and then we'll put it on as a one-off and then it sort of disappears so it's become I think almost like a a really inept theatre company in that it used to be a more of a comedy night and you'd have different acts and it would sort of mimic the shape of a normal stand-up night but the things that people would be doing would be really bizarre and really strange so it was more kind of collaboratively led in that way and it's now more that Adam's a kind of writer-director figure who writes these plays and then we rehearse them and put them on quite badly and nobody knows their lines and everybody ad-libs horribly and really and kind of comes to joy. yeah it becomes right. that that becomes the sort of the stupidity and the joke really but it seems like it's 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 great for you in this moment to have like had a big payday so you've yeah, got a yeah. of, of, of space to like think what am I going to do and then you've got all of these people yeah it's nice to say, have hey, that kind of pool of people to just me. go let's uh, let's try and do something with these two or here or whatever and yeah. other people seem to be doing it as well like every now and again you'll just get a message from somebody kind of out of the blue and they'll go do you want to be involved in this potential thing or whatever right. it's sort of this big it's the same with Family Tree actually right. like I don't think we'd really sort of done anything for a while but then when you sort of put the time into working with people off and on then occasionally they'll think of you when you're right for something yeah. and you just get called in to kind of play around on a particular particular idea or a particular thing yeah. and sometimes they won't happen like there's a couple where I've been called on and they go let's try this and then it never really happens and then other times it turns into a thing you're in a situation as well where you can where you can say yes. yeah which like, is really lovely I don't know how long it'll last it's the sort of uh, the, the hope is that you'd be able to keep doing those big sort of corporate jobs that manage to fund the little things but equally I've had it before where I just had to work at the children, the soft play centre where I do the birthday parties used to be a sort of more or less full time day job as well and I'd serve coffee and that kind of thing so I think it's just being aware of when you need to go back to kind of just working hard and doing the grind right. of that and when you're when you have the luxury of time to not need to right. and just being prepared to put in as much time as you have to to get by really right. I mean, the thing, so this I'd never been... want to be lazy and kind of end up going I don't want to do any work I want to carry on doing this or whatever yeah. you're always you've always got to be prepared to go and just put the hours in of doing a sort of rubbish job in a cafe for a bit it's, well, it's but great. it's trying to make the best of the time you're given I think it's great that you've made a you know you've made the most of this opportunity that you've yeah, had this yeah. year, which is great I mean I'm, I'm in this the first kind of this year maybe the last two years I've been in the first time in my life where I found myself having you know in inverted commas to say no to things yeah uh, and that's not that's not my instinct my instinct yeah, is to yeah. say yes to everything yeah same and uh, that's always worked out quite well for me in the past but now it's like I'm happy to say things 
say no to things that I'd like to do because there's just, yeah. like, you know, there's only so much time slash uh, no money that you can, you know, exist in. Yeah. That's one of the reasons, I guess, why I, I look at your your life at the moment and go, wow. Um, but I'm sure there's been moments in my life where it's been the other way around. Yeah, I think so. I think there's wow, always those sort of pockets of time where you yeah. just try and make the most of things and then other times where you really don't have right. sort of much there. I've also tried to get better at saying no to the things that I think aren't just aren't going to work with me involved in them. I think there was one this year. Like I used to say yes to literally everything that was suggested to me, and it meant that sometimes they came out and I'd, I'd look at the end result or whatever and go, I don't know if I was right for that, really. So this year I've tried to be much better at going, just do the things that you really believe are going to be the right things. And I think that's worked out quite well this year. I haven't done anything for a while that I've then watched and gone, oh, I wish I hadn't done that, <laughs> uh, which I used to do a few years yeah, ago. There'd be the a... odd thing where you go, that was probably not worth your it's time. It's a strange that feeling watching yeah. yourself do something that you're not happy with. Yeah. Like somebody else has got control over yeah, that thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is a weird feeling. I've had that occasionally. So you decided to get into comedy or start doing comedy when you were at uni. Yeah, yeah. Before that, like... Had that been on your radar? Or I what? kind of, I'd, I'd always, as long as I can remember sort of working out what I wanted to do in general, it had come down to writing or performing. It was always that. Uh, I think it was Terry Pratchett made me want to write, because as a kid I just devoured all that in about a year or two, I think. I think in about two years I just read everything he'd written and just went mad at about the age of ten on it. Um... <laughs> And then after that went, right, I'm definitely going to write. And then for a few years became a sort of uh, quite rubbish Terry Pratchett impersonator and would just write my own <laughs> kind of comedy fantasy novels or attempts at them. And I'm sure they probably exist somewhere. And I ought to find them at some point and just look at what I was writing when I was 12. Um, for sure. And then that would sort of change. And it would always be impersonations of whatever I was into at the time. Like I got, I got really into Harold Pinter when I was 15 and then wrote a whole load of plays that just read exactly like uh, rip-offs of Harold Pinter. Um, and then did <laughs> yeah, a lot of... of those, I think. Just really, it's such an <laughs> odd thing to suddenly decide you're obsessed by as a 15-year-old. Um, and then did a lot of acting with sort of youth theatre and things like that. So I think every, whenever I thought about what I wanted to do, I knew it was in some way going to be acting or performance or linked to writing. And But there was never really... like You always hear comedians talk about, like, oh, the first time I went to a comedy club and it suddenly all came together and all that kind of thing. I just wasn't that obsessed by live comedy as a kid. Uh, but I was by sitcoms. I loved uh, Peep Show and Alan Partridge and stuff like that. That makes sense. And I just... <laughs> yeah, I just couldn't get enough of that. That same kind of, like, thing of just finding comedy and a load of humanity in the idea of actually quite unbearable situations and real kind of crushing awkwardness and that kind of thing I mean, and that, making them really funny and really really warm to watch actually so does that come from your life so I like I like awkward um, yeah and you know that's because I think it feels really realistic to me like, yeah because I feel awkward in the world but also I've had quite a lot of you know I would say you know my family dynamics have had kind of awkwardness uh, built into them yeah, and you know, the, the the last couple of episodes of the Family Tree, which is the, a podcast that yeah. you're you're in, have have been quite awkward, um, and I I've liked that about them. But a friend of mine who also has got quite a complicated family background, yeah, finds awkward too much because really? it's too real because it makes them remember 
like the awkwardness of family dinner tables yeah. or whatever they, they they run away from it so they were like I like the show I like the artistry yeah, of but it I just but can't I can't listen enjoy the Whereas dynamic of it I love it I love it when really it feels because like I'm like stuff. thank god other people feel <laughs> yeah, as shitty yeah, yeah. as I do about how interacting with other people yeah. it's great so does it come from, from I think, um, your life or does I it... don't know I think it, it's possibly it, it's possibly it's got something to do with the fact that I think my whole like I felt very awkward as a teenager definitely and really struggled to kind of like I have I've no friends left from when I was a teenager I think two maybe but, and they're both I like them a lot and really care about them they're not like sort of oh those guys right but in general I just didn't make any kind of friendships that have lasted there's sort of small things that I probably struggled with in that my, like my parents split up when I was very young and maybe that was a thing that I sort of felt I struggled with growing up but at the same time none of them were sufficient problems enough that they actually caused me to feel like sort of troubled or hard done by right. or anything like that. None of them the... a good backbone for an Edinburgh. Well, no, yeah, very much so. <laughs> well, um, just the thing of like, I mean, I was I was three when my parents split up, so it wasn't ever a kind of a traumatic right. thing. And also the just idea sort of, of live reality. Right? Yeah, it's just that a thing kind of that you kind of thing. had. And the idea of being a sort of a, a teenager who struggled to make sort of strong friendships is. It's something that you feel is upsetting and that makes you worry and kind of internalise and go into your own head and stuff. But it's also not something that then creates a massive sort of issue in your life that needs to be resolved. So it's the kind of thing that none of it was serious enough that I would then feel the need to go away and channel it into, like any sort of serious drama. Like, I don't feel I could have uh, gone away and tried to become a serious writer off the back of any stuff that happened to me. Not saying that, like, to write serious stuff you have to have had really tragic stuff happen to you in your life. But I guess what I mean is, when I saw that kind of awkward comedy, like Peep Show, The Office of Partridge or whatever, it felt really nice because it felt like a really natural reaction to the idea of having small everyday problems right. and things that actually aren't significant enough to result in trauma or real kind of upset or real anguish but that cause you enough internal sort of grief in your head that you need to have some sort of response to them so the idea of watching all this stuff as a teenager where people's response to them was to make fun of them and to make humour out of it and to make it quite funny and quite warm and quite human uh, felt like the perfect response really so I think I always looked at that and when I want to make something that explores those ideas in a similar way and that tries to take small everyday problems and then turns them into something absurd or something stupid or something, just something nice and something pleasant because I think it happens to a whole load of people. Right. So I think that's why, really, is that I sort of would constantly feel bad about loads of tiny things but also feel, I guess, guilty about the fact that, like, none of these actually are problems worth worrying about or or that really have affected me profoundly. So the idea of turning them into an absurdist thing felt like quite a logical progression, I think. So that's why I was obsessed with sitcom. And then I th- sort of discovered stand-up at uni. I wrote a couple of audio sitcoms for the student radio station, and John Britton, who is now a writer, writes Margaret Thatcher, Queen of Soho, and stuff like that, and a great play called Rotterdam uh, that transferred to Trafalgar Studios recently about a, a gay couple and one of them transitions into a man. And I'd sort of, I'd spent years around him, him writing just very kind of gloriously stupid comedy shows, and then he went and wrote this really thoughtful, excellent drama. So he's he's an excellent writer. But he said essentially he ran a stand-up night in Norwich, and said your scripts are quite funny. You should come and give this a go. And I went and tried it, and it felt like there was a nice fusion of performance and writing that I hadn't really anticipated or thought about before. 
I'd always knew I wanted to do those two things and then thought, oh, you can do them both in this space. So I think that's why I got excited about it, rather than because I grew up sort of idolising stand-ups or whatever. And how, how do you feel about audiences? How do you mean? Well, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's an interesting thing, like, being awkward on stage. Like, mm. I, I, that's my thing as well, like, in a very different way. Yeah. But, but my, you know, my stick, if you like, as much as it is also real, is, is, is being awkward in public. And sometimes audiences really dig that. Yeah. Um, but sometimes they don't. And particularly comedy audiences, some of those audiences are going to uh, relate to what you do. And other yeah. ones are going to be like, uh, I want someone, like I want a man shouting yeah, on stage. It's I don't weird. want a, a, a person who's There's a real kind ambiguous. of power dynamic to it, I think, in that like a lot of, I think TV stand-ups done a lot of damage to people's expectations of what live comedy can be. Right. And I don't mean that to say that the stand-ups that you see on TV are bad stand-ups, but I do think that the way they're presented very much plays into this dynamic that the, the comedian is... The, the powerful figure and the, the sort of the slick, cool, in control one and the audience are kind of looking up at them and going, wow, what a glamorous sort of rock star right. position they're in. And I think it's so much more interesting to watch somebody a, a bit pathetic or a bit stupid or somebody not quite know what they're doing or who's not quite doing it right, right. and the audience are, are laughing at this idiot trying to do something and sort of failing. Like right. the idea of putting on a show where you try and express something and don't quite manage it I think is really interesting. So that's always been my thing with it. And by and large, and I think it's a lot to do with the kind of audiences I now choose to perform in front of, in that for a long time you go, I'll do any gig I'm offered, and then gradually you realise, oh, I'm just not right for a, quite a lot of gigs. So I don't do many clubs now because I think people go there with their existing idea of what stand-up is and they don't like it when it's when they're given something that has a different dynamic to it. And I don't say that as like, I think what I do is really kind of avant-garde or challenging or whatever. I just think it comes from a different place right. in terms of what I want the audience to think of me. So I don't fit in very well at a lot of clubs. But it does still occasionally happen. Like There were a few times in Edinburgh this year, and by and large the Fringe is kind of the perfect place where you can get the right sort of audience because you can yeah. choose who you try and attract to it by flyering all day you get people of the more the right kind of mindset anyway because There's of what it is and the fact that it attracts anyone can walk in though you're right yeah so um <laughs> so there were a few times this year where i think i did about three shows in a row somewhere in the middle where it was, it was the middle week was going really well really nice and uh, sold out every day for the sort of middle bit of it and really lovely responses and there were about three shows that were part of that where about two or three people walked out halfway through on those three days as part of shows that I felt were going really well. And I found it very odd just because there's there's nothing in that show that's objectionable. There's no kind of offensive material or risque material or, or challenging material. And it's also, although what I do is a bit silly, there's nothing that's so ridiculously kind of outrageous or, or avant-garde that would make people go, this is not what I wanted, I'm storming out of here. So it was neither of those things, and I basically feel like all my shows are, they're just they're my personality distilled into an hour, <laughs> whatever shape that takes. So on those occasions when people walk out, it's very much that they're making a judgment call of like, on I you. don't like this guy, right. I just don't like this person and how he's choosing to manifest Although himself. you never know what people are going to take offence on. I remember another moment that I remember really vividly of you on stage was when you did at Edinburgh when you were doing your show Hey Guys oh and, right, yeah I really and, panicked about guys well, yeah because someone from the audience 
it, you know, I felt like, oh my god, but like I felt like responsible for you because you know, like the audience was basically heckling you, and I don't, I don't, I'm not a fan of of heckling in some ways, although you know, some of it's legitimate. Yeah, sometimes. yeah. But but a woman in the audience particularly took offence at the fact to me saying guys, you, you were saying guys, yeah. in a, and you you were using guys in a kind of a gender neutral way, which yeah. is how it is sometimes used now. But I, I understand kind of, why people. Yeah, who, I totally who are get it, and this sort generation of, might get annoyed with that. I think in a weird way that like so that that show was called Hey Guys, <laughs> yeah, right. and I sort of used it as a it, in a weird way in my head, and this is a thing where you make shows that are more for yourself for the audience in the um, I think in the year or two leading up to that uh, saying hey guys had become a, just, just a go to way of trying to say hello to people when I was with a group of people I knew yep. and people had started picking up on it and going you always say hey guys in exactly the same tone and it, it's always that hey guys and to try and so for me it was this admission of this weird kind of awkward mantra that I used to yes. try and ingratiate myself yeah, yeah. to people and trying to explore it wasn't a particularly important aspect of the show but using it as the title for me was a way of going here's the thing I say that I always say because I think hopefully it tries to open up a room in a, in a warm way <laughs> and for some reason the idea that my brain always goes to it is interesting and I just hadn't anticipated that the fact that there's that word in there which loads of people do object to and I think I think one of the big objections to it is the fact that it's it's very management speak, right. and it's even there's the sort of the gender issue is is one big thing of it, but it's also caught up with that quite nasty like okay guys we're going to have this yeah. on our desk by it's fake it's yeah it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah 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 managers being fake in terms of like you're my friends but you're not yeah. my friends you're yeah, actually yeah. My, my employee which for me the idea of trying to use that as some sort of silly catchphrase or byword of like I'm going to try and be your friend had something sort of interesting and endearing about it and I completely just hadn't anticipated that there was a potential for offending people in there or for annoying them certainly yeah um, so that was interesting to have that it was the only time that that was actually kind of thrown at me yeah but, I mean um, and, well, yeah I mean, and you know I think you know like it, it, I, I, I can understand why the audience member in, in context maybe took offence mm. to that but I mean I think within the within the context of your your show generally that year I don't think it was an offensive yeah I think it made sense within within the thing and also there is this kind of you know there is this thing of like language evolves and sometimes it evolves in in ways that you can't kind of fully control like yeah like and and sometimes people reclaim things so like you know now we talk about queer people because that's a, yeah. a word that people have reclaimed yeah but that's not how it sounds I remember that being right? offensive I, well I, like I do ten too years Years ago, or exactly. But I mean, you know, some people will use it in offensive yeah. way now, as well. It's not. It's not fully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like just by using it, you're automatically kind of safe now. It's it's um, based on how the context of how words are used and things. There's still the offence to kind of cause damage, no right. matter what you're projecting but or I what you're intending an, to project. It was an interesting thing to see in the dynamic because yeah. like, often you see high status, if you like, comedians saying things that offend people. Yeah. But it was very interesting to see a low yeah, status yeah, comedian. Very, yeah, I've never like, tried to like, present myself oh, in the um, way of like the you know, the sh- shocking or kind of uh, controversial right, right. Or, or challenging comic. But well, you didn't sort of like... Very not, much never tried right, to do that. I mean, that's what I liked in that, in that moment. A lot of the time, and, and comedians trade off this a little bit too much now, like everyone's got the... I, I knocked down a heckler yeah, video, yeah. which I don't really like that trend. Even though I don't like heckles, I also don't like 
people put using down their power it's nasty. To put people I down. did a, a video um, earlier this year. It was just a, annoyingly, it was a really kind of briefly thought out thing that I just filmed and put up, and it got more views than anything else I've made recently. But it was people who put up comedian destroys heckler videos, and I noticed that they're all uploaded by the comedian, which I hadn't noticed. But they call it comedian destroys heckler right, because right. it's a clickbaity title. So I really liked the idea of the arrogance of a comedian or not arrogance but the kind of uh, the front of a comedian putting up one of those videos but then if you watched it and it was really terrible so I filmed a fake gig where somebody just abuses me horribly and I just sort of have a breakdown and say stop it leave me alone just let me do my let me do my jokes and it's just me being completely ripped apart by this heckler but then uploaded it and called it comedian destroys heckler right just because there's it's again it's that weird power thing of and every time people make one of those videos, it reinforces the idea that it's supposed to be a battle between the comedian and the audience, and the audience throws in a heckle as a challenge, and the comedian then has to rise to the challenge and tell the heckler he's an idiot, and it's only by kind of proving yourself in that battleground thing that you become a good comedian. And I just think it's really... It's a bit dull, I think. It's a, it's, it's a kind of confrontational thing that doesn't actually serve to create an atmosphere where people are interested in the ideas that the comedian's presenting or putting forward but then I guess it's two completely different angles that you're coming from and some people very much would say comedy needs to be entertaining and the whole point is that people have come for a good night out and they want a laugh and you have to give them that laugh and however they want it presented uh, which is very much not what I think at all I think it's, it's much better when people are there to be entertained but they're there to be entertained by sharing in this world that a comedian is presenting to them or buying into the ideas that they're putting forward right and I much prefer that I mean are you someone they're both they're both right but but I just try and avoid the places where where those people are right because I don't think I fit in very well there no that's fair enough I mean do you feel like like in terms of social situations that like saying the wrong thing is something that you kind of you've occasionally done in your social life and then you kind of use that to a certain extent in your in your acting I think so I think I'm sort of um, I think I'm just very aware of of um, of being looked at in social situations this is a weird thing where uh so rather than sort of always saying the wrong thing, I'm just always very aware of my brain trying to work out what the right thing is. And that right. tends to be where I go to. Whenever I feel awkward socially, it's not because I've done something stupid or said the wrong thing. It's because my brain's already anticipating and going, oh, I don't know what the right thing is. So I almost sort of shut down and go quiet or just go into... Uh, I was at a wedding on Saturday and I won't say too many it was a really lovely wedding but there were a few people there that I haven't seen in years and that I don't really have much in common with anymore and you just feel yourself kind of locking into not really having much to say and being aware of yourself and like oh they must think you look really boring because they haven't seen you in years and you've got nothing to say for yourself and that kind of self-analysis and self-criticism of that so I think that's why when I then try to write scripts or whatever about social awkwardness or social anxiety or whatever, it tends to venture more into the territory of I play somebody who does completely the wrong things and says the wrong things in that maybe that's a wish fulfilment thing or a, a, a speculative thing of trying to see what it's like if you do commit to to saying the, the, the thing you shouldn't right. or doing the thing you shouldn't because perhaps it's more interesting than what I normally do, which is to just sort of shut down and go, I really don't know. 
don't know what to say to these people. Right, and I mean, am I remember? Because I don't remember this anecdote fully, but I remember one of the first times I met you. I think I think you came along to a Spark Night um, with uh, a mutual a friend of ours, I guess, Charlie Harrison. Yeah. Uh, when she she was she was just starting to get into comedy, I think, and she she brought you along to a Spark Night, and I remember sitting afterwards and you telling me this story about kind of being chased out of a venue by people oh. and getting up on a roof and all sorts of things. Yeah, so, w- yeah, yeah. So that was, that was weird. That was, uh, it's the kind of, that was for a gig. So again, it's the kind of thing where like, when it's, when it's a gig and I have the kind of legitimate excuse of you're doing this for a creative purpose, then it's almost like then I commit to doing something I could never think to do in a social context. So for that gig, I was told... Um, my role was I was going to turn up quite late in the gig as a sort of a surprise and just play a ridiculous character and mess about on stage and then leave. Uh, and I thought I knew everybody that was involved in the gig and they were all friends of mine and therefore I could probably get away with doing something really stupid. So I decided to turn up just in a, a little gold thong and nothing else, hid my clothes in a back alley, um, <laughs> turned up late and then ran around the audience basically without anything on and everyone was very confused about what's going on. And then eventually I ended up on stage and turned to face the comedians and realised I knew none of them and they were also <laughs> staring at me going, what the hell is, what is this? Uh, and then just panicked and uh, ran away, ran out of the gig, uh, tried to get my clothes back on, but then saw a chef coming out around behind the corner of it and then sort of abandoned my clothes and hid on the roof of this building for about 20 minutes until everyone had gone. And in that situation, I did end up there going, this is not a situation I could possibly have ended up in if it weren't for the fact that I initially entered into it with the vague excuse of, I'm doing this for a gig or because I'm going to try and express... So something. You, you didn't know any of the comedians didn't there? Know, well, I knew the, the MC who booked right, me. Right, who told you to come. And I thought it was, because every other time we'd done the gig, it had been a particular group of people right. that we rotated through, so I assumed it would be some of those people again. So painful. Yeah, horrible. I mean, <laughs> since, actually, one of them was John Hastings, who I've since now gigged with quite a bit, and I don't know him that well, but well enough to feel like I get on with him and he's a nice guy. <laughs> so it's not like I've destroyed a load of potential friendships there. No. I mean, the other ones I haven't seen at all. But he's the only one where I've since occasionally seen him. And he goes, yeah, I remember that, I mean, <laughs> that what, thing. What I like about that story as well is that I know that what, one of the things that you sort of are going for in your comedy is kind of delight. It's yeah. like kind of like silliness and yeah, delight and yeah. playfulness. And it's like you've gone into that with this idea of like delight, <laughs> yeah. playfulness, and then just everyone's gone like, yeah, he's no, a monster. That's not he's what a we monster. wanted. And then, and then you've run out. And I just, it's just so vulnerable as well, this the idea yeah. of you in the streets of Edinburgh without any clothes on. Yeah. Yeah. Like, not knowing what to do, climbing up onto the roof. Like, it's like, you know... I can't even remember how I got into the roof, because I definitely... There wasn't a... There wasn't a ladder. I feel like there was a... Because of Edinburgh being the way it is, I think there was a, a street, a sort of cobbled hill street that managed to connect the bottom of the building to the top of the building somehow. So I think I just ran up the hill and then ended up on the roof by accident. Because I feel like actually going to the effort of climbing a ladder to get onto a roof feels too calculated a thing right, I feel right, like right. I can't have done that but I think I just ran up a hill yeah, until I was on a roof I think that's that's how I, I remember it being told one thing that you're doing at the moment well you haven't done yet well, you've done but it's not come out yet is The Family Tree which yeah. is a podcast drama sort of in the process of coming yeah, out yeah right that me and my partner Jen have been producing and you've performed in so we cast you in that and I mean it's it's so weird like for, to me now because you know I mean 
not to say that, that you are not an amazing performer who we would have come to first if we in a different scenario. Mm. But originally we sort of like wrote that part for a specifically different, very different, quite a high status comedian. Am I allowed to know who it is? Oh, yeah, I remember you, you said you in, when we were recording I wasn't allowed to know because it would influence I didn't want me too much. Yeah, right, exactly. Well, it was John Henry Fall. Right. right. That like, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and he's like very high status. Yeah, and yeah. And so very sort of our, original, our original con- conception of that character, I guess, was kind of like high status in a like completely unjustified yeah. way. But then when he sort of like, he couldn't do it for whatever reason. And we were thinking who could, who could replace it? Like, we went for, to like a very low status. Yeah, performer, that's interesting. And that's been so perfect. Like, yeah. I actually, like, I'm so happy that John, yeah, as much as like I think that. he's a great performer. I'm so glad he couldn't do it because I'm so happy with, with, with it's what interesting. It's certainly meant thing he w- would have had, obviously, is because uh, you'd already kind of established in the plot that he was a folklore expert by right. the time I was playing him, which obviously John Henry would have been fantastic over right. and had all the kind of information. Well, and then when I was doing it, we had to very much kind of skirt over those elements of the character. And go, I, oh, yeah, I do like folklore, but, but I can't I like tell that, you much about it. I like that, though, because what that brought to the, the role was kind of a sense of, like, he thinks he's an expert, but he's yeah, not Yeah, but expert. he's not even willing to open up about right. it. Right, he doesn't even which is know, quite like, interesting. It, it's definitely like like the, the the character of Nathan kind of is 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 always kind of very vague in his own yeah. own thoughts in yeah, his own world. Yeah, like he became he's much this very more, sort of internalized. Yeah, thinker. I mean, it was really interesting because we, I guess when we conceived of that character, he was going to be like obnoxious. But right. I, but I think what's actually happened when when we sat down with you and did the character development work, and then when we when, yeah. when you came in and performed it, is he's actually become. One of the most sympathetic yeah, characters he felt quite, in the show. He feels quite sweet, though, I think, in the in the playing of him. And yeah. I mean, an idiot and very very self absorbed <laughs> and very oblivious to what's going on around him, but never in a way that feels unkind. Right. It's it's so weird though to have conceived a character for one yeah, performer that's... and then now I can't imagine it as that yeah, performer. Yeah, it's like, really I... interesting. It would have been such a different it take, I think. I mean, I think you know, like. I'm sure it would have been its own thing. It would have been good in its own way. Yeah. But I'm so glad that that that, that fell through, and then that, that we got you. But also, it was so interesting. For, so you and a few other of the characters, you said yes to a show, but you didn't know what the show was. Yes, yeah, no idea. Like, because you, your characters didn't know the full information, yeah. so we didn't tell you the full information because we did it kind of like a murder mystery. Yeah. And it was so interesting that that people said yes with so little information. Yeah, I think that's what really excited me about it was <laughs> the idea of I'm a big fan of a murder. But my dad's obsessed with sort of uh, crime novels and all that kind of thing, so I've always been excited by the idea of a murder mystery so the idea of trying to help create one that you're actually piecing together and trying to solve while making it or um, or being involved in the making of it was really exciting I felt like because uh, on, the, on, the, on a very sort of basic level it sounded like a fun opportunity to sort of act in a thing and to take on an acting role but the idea that it would be caught up with solving a puzzle at the same time felt quite exciting really and like a really original idea so even though I had no idea where it was going or what the character was it just felt like a sort of a, a really fun project to be part of I'm really glad I, yeah I mean it was a really it. quick as well because because uh, you were a last minute replacement Replacement, which is not to say that you're a replacement. Yeah. Um, but that because of that, it was like it was quite like short period of time between you saying yeah. yes. And then yeah. Yeah. It was only a couple of weeks or so. Yeah. And and so um, it was and it was really exciting to to get your performance. It was you know in all of the performances were exciting, but in a way because your character went in a completely different way than we originally imagined. Yeah. It was uh, super exciting to to have that. But then after we 
did that scene, then we told you the, yeah. the spoilers yeah. and, and, and told you what the actual show was going to be. I mean, what did, what, was, what did you think then? I think it just, it really changed my perspective on what the show was, <laughs> which was in a really interesting way in that, like, like I said, so I initially sort of signed up thinking, okay, so it's going to be some sort of mystery puzzle that we solve out and um, as we talk about it, we'll all be able to figure it out and get there. And the sort of final reveal is very much something that I, I, I doubt any listeners would anticipate or predict, um, and certainly I didn't. It would have to be um, very interesting. Like it's, it's, it's definitely very left field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They basically have to already be kind of on the same wavelength as my character to even <laughs> engage with it as an idea, I think. So it was, it was really interesting in that it compl- it's a complete kind of about turn in what the show feels like it is. But then what's interesting is the format of the, cha- of the show continues and is exactly the same. So it remains... Nothing actually changes in the tone of the conversations that happen or the, or the tone of the show or the format of the show or the characters. So it's the idea of, like, kind of bait and switch of setting up something that feels like there's going to be a really precise Sherlock-esque it was this and then this happened and this happened and this happened and all very sort of logic-driven. And the fact that it then becomes a much more surprising thing and unpredictable thing means... I don't know, I mean, I haven't heard the second half yet, so I have no idea how it plays right. out, but the idea of having an audience that then that completely has their expectations reversed and then continues to engage with this show that, that continues to pursue that idea with the same sense of logic is really interesting, I think. Right. The idea that the same sort of conversational process is applied to a really out-there concept, I think, is really fun. Yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been really interesting doing it and, like acting as myself like yeah. working out what I would do in that situation and I think like I've, I've said this to a few people but I think the, the end of the series I'm no longer playing myself because yeah. I've been through experiences that I haven't been through so so who I am and who my character of me is yeah. is kind of like yeah it's diverged and gone in separate paths so your your episodes next week so you haven't even been out yet so yeah. we, we don't neither of us know yet how the how the public will receive your character yeah I, I feel like they're gonna uh, respond really well to your character. I hope so. I mean, yeah, it's it's, it's all to play for. Like the, the week after your episode goes out is the that's when the big reveal right. happens, and then we see if the audience, how many of the audience follow us in that <laughs> yeah, direction, yeah, and how many yeah. don't. I mean, I hope that also what will happen is the people who do like that change yeah. will say, "Hey, you should listen to this yeah, show from the yeah. beginning." And, yeah, because you know, it really sets up one thing and then yeah, yeah, takes yeah. it in a new direction. But I'm very super aware that once that episode goes out, the spoilers are out there in the world then yeah and, that's and true it so it's hard like to a, kind of structure the mystery of only it. people who've listened from the beginning will get that it's like you know when there's a big twist in a, in a film and yeah. you go and see it but you kind of know what the twist is yeah, like, yeah. even if you try to avoid it like I feel like you know that's the, the that's the sad thing about trying to build up a, an audience yeah um, with something that's yeah that's twists. a reveal yeah, yeah. Um, but but I mean th- People shouldn't worry. There's plenty of other twists that we have in mind for a second season, um, so uh, people shouldn't shouldn't feel that there isn't that there's still a lot of twists to play for. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, assuming we make a second season, which I really probably think we will, um, and then we'll see how many of the original performers. Hopefully, we'll yeah, have you back. Yeah. But there's also scope for the second season as well to open it out in a, in a yeah. very different way. People should check out the family tree. You're going to be in it good. next week. This 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 episode will probably come out the week after. So in the big reveal week, so people should uh, go and go and listen. From week one. Well, from week one, yeah, or they'll, they'll not get the full effect. And people can find out about that at www.thefamilytree.co.uk. Yeah, that's my plug done. 
The last question that I ask everybody is, uh, do you have anything to plug? So there's this film that I'm working on about The Devil that'll be out. We're filming it in November, and I guess that'll be out sort of early New Year or something like that. I don't know how long edits take on that kind of thing. seems to vary a lot. Uh, and we're doing the Weirdos Panto uh, is at the Leicester Square Theatre this year. We've sort of taken it a step up into an actual space, which will be odd because we've only ever done it in kind of abandoned restaurants or <laughs> run-down working men's clubs where we feel like we can take over the whole space and now we're in a proper theatre, so that'll be weird how it changes it. Uh, and I think that's on the 8th to the 10th of December. And this year it's called My Big Fat Weirdos Christmas Wedding and it's about a big wedding. Uh, and that's sort of it at the moment. I'm writing a lot of stuff and trying to work out where it's going to go and got a few work-in-progress things at festivals next year which might lead to another Edinburgh show, but all of it at the moment is quite sort of throwing a lot of stuff down into notebooks and seeing where it goes. So those are the two concrete things I'm doing at the moment, I think. And your first film's available online to watch? Yeah, that's called Double Act, and it's about sort of a failing TV uh, entertainment showbiz uh, duo played by Ed Axel and Michael Brunstrom again. Uh, who's cropped up a lot, and they run out of money, realise they, they're not doing very well anymore, so they have to kill each other to get the insurance money. So it's about that uh, kind of battle between the two of them, and Gabby Best plays their agent who agrees to try and help them murder each other. <laughs> so that one's really fun. And there's a web series called The Girl Whisperer as well that I made that's a sort of autobiographical thing about me. Just It started as a, as a quite specific set of sketches about dating and about, oh, dating's hard. And then I realised I was kind of done with that as a theme. So by the end of the second series, it's a bit more open and about friendship and things like that. Uh, and it's just generally about me struggling to do things. Uh, and that's got people like Harriet Kemsley and John Kearns and people like that in it. Yeah, it's great fun. Yeah, I mean, it's, the first series I really loved. I mean, it's an interesting space to be working in because it's kind of like, there's a, again, there's like a line where you can... Where you, uh, there's a sympathy line yeah. with men trying to date. Yeah, that, that I think it's it stayed on the right side. I of. think so. I think it's sort of. I think that was my big issue with that first series is that like the the premise is I play a version of myself who goes to a friend who's uh, played by Ralph Little and is a bit of a misogynist uh, who gives me dating advice and then I proceed to go and get it wrong. And I think it stayed in, in a place of sort of warmth and and pleasantness but there's something inherently kind of blokey about the concept about like one bloke talks to another bloke tries to get some advice about girls that it was it would have been easy for it to stray into something a bit a bit nastier uh, and I think on the whole it didn't manage to but that's why in the second series I tried to make it a bit less centered on that and a bit more about this friendship between me and Harriet and uh, and to hopefully play that in a more in a nicer way well because that's I mean as far as I understand from your comedy as well like you know you're you're one of you're a man who's often been mostly friends with women. Right? Yeah, girls, yeah, yeah. Girls when you're a teenager. Yeah, most of my um, sort of close friends. Well, no, I've got a load of sort of close friends who are guys as well, but most of them are comedians actually. Right, and it evens uh, out, I think. Like, yeah. I think there's a lot of. I think this happens to both genders. I think there's a lot of like women who are only friends with guys for a bit, yeah. and there's a lot of men who are only friends with uh, women for a bit. I think I was one of those for a bit in my teens at times. Um, but then you know it broadens out and people yeah, are people yeah. and actually yeah, and you just make friends with nice people but yeah, yeah for a long time while at the time when I was at the age that you were sort of taking stock of those things it was very much that oh all my best friends are women so that's something that I write about occasionally and that I just don't think it's a it's a type of relationship that's explored very much in scripted comedy it's either uh, if there's ever a script about a guy and a girl hanging out it's very often played in a will they won't they kind of right, dynamic and it's right, very right. rare that you actually see a comedy script that's just about a wholesome friendship between a male and a female character. Right. I can't think of many. 
I'm sure there are loads. No, it, just, it feels I, I, an interesting I, thing to write about. I think you're I don't right. Think there's I think, much of it. I think it is quite an underrepresented thing. And you're right. It's always will they, won't they? Yeah. And there's, yeah. A, there's a lot. Like of even people... I think spaced comes closest. But even that, by the end of spaced, is very much angling along the like, are they going to get together? I mean, kind it's of thing. tempting as well as a, as a writer, though. I can understand the temptation. Yeah, to, you're right. You want drama. Those, yeah, and, and you drama want... comes from sexual attraction. But yeah. the thing, at the end of the day, I think you're right, and I I think there's a lot of we always constantly hear over and over again as well like a man and a woman cannot be friends it's yeah, impossible yeah, and like so yeah, many yeah. people There's say so that much evidence and to like, the contrary you know, it's yeah it's it's, it's it, there is evidence to the contrary but I think there'd be more evidence to the contrary yeah, if, if more people, people stopped wrote saying it, it yeah. as well if that's why when Harry Met Sally is one of my well it's a great film but it's also one of my least favourite films because it sets itself up specifically as a way to explore that question right. and potentially do it really well and then by the end of it it goes nah actually they are going to get together so right. it's, the whole question of it is like can they be friends and then they go no they can't right. <laughs> I think you had an opportunity to do something really useful there and you didn't manage it, which is a shame. No, I agree. I, I think you know. I, I agree, and it's. A, it, I agree. I have those similar re- reservations about that film. Yeah, and it's complicated as well because it's obviously it's it, it's a, it's written by a woman as well. So yeah, you know, yeah. In, in that respect, I'm, I'm, I don't want to kind of like you know be sh- shitting on the yeah oh yeah no the yeah the idea women that, comedian yeah com- comedic that's voices. great it's just um, a shame the just time, literally the last five minutes annoying. of it are a bit like ah yeah. oh, come on. <laughs> I agree. No, I I fully agree with that. So yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you, for, thank you for chatting. Yeah, it's, been, it's been great. But the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Uh, thanks for listening, audience, and have a lovely day wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Bye, everyone. Goodbye. <laughs> so you can find The Family Tree at www.thefamilytree.co. And we did actually talk quite a bit more about The Family Tree, but I cut that out because it contained spoilers. If you go to The Family Tree Patreon and subscribe as one of our patrons, then you'll get that eventually as part of our special features that we'll be giving to patrons who signed up for that package. We do really, really want to make a second season, and so we really would like you to help us to do that. And if you listen to Getting Better Acquainted, if you're a regular listener to this show and you'd like to give something back to me because this is a free show as is the family tree then please become a patron and and help that tree to grow and the best thing you can do for me and the family tree is to help spread the word tell people about it and if you've got a little spare few moments of time maybe even pop on itunes and give us an itunes review because that's really important and also actually Another thing that would be really amazing and helpful is if you could ring up the Family Tree's voicemail and leave your theories. By the end of the season, some of those messages may very well influence what happens in the second season so you can become part of the writing process. That's enough from me. You can find Getting Better Acquainted pretty much anywhere that podcasts go to hang out on the internet. You can follow it on Twitter at GBA Podcast. I'm on Twitter at GooseFat101 and Getting Better Acquainted, The Family Tree, me and all of that stuff is pretty much everywhere online. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted. On Monday the 26th of September, I'm launching my new podcast, The Family Tree. When my dad found out about a mystery concerning a long-forgotten friend of his, I decided to investigate it in the only way that I know how, by having conversations. I can't make judgments or 
say anything without knowing all the facts and everything around it. It's sort of exploring each of the parameters of each potential story you're given and trying to work out how it can fit into each one of those. And I guess in a way it's all of them until until it's none of them or one of them. Mark Sullivan, who disappeared 15 years ago, was found dead in January this year when a forest was cleared for a new building development. I see the world differently, having known Mark Sullivan. You're like the, the, the person who's the witness for all of them. Mm-hmm. You're, you, the only yeah. thing they'll know of their dad as, a, as an adult, you know, is going to be through, through your eyes. I mean, I guess that's quite a big responsibility. It's, it's difficult. The body they found still had the arm and teeth that he lost in a car accident and seems to have died eight years before he disappeared. I mean, who's the dad you'd spent so much time with if your dad is a body that can't be the dad that you grew up with? It doesn't make any sense. Like, even if there's some other reason for that other body, he'll still have died. But whether I would have felt different if Mark had disappeared before the accident compared to when he did disappear, I don't know. You keep talking about this mystery, and I I think... I don't know. I think someone's made a mistake somewhere. I know you don't mean it like this, but the question's almost offensive. In this podcast, I try to unpick this mystery through a series of conversations with Mark's family and friends. But I don't know, and there's only so many ways that someone can say I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's a mystery, it's just... Yeah, you said it's a mistake. There are things that I think I probably can't tell you about. But you also can't deny that it's it's evidence. Obviously, there's a difference between evidence and proof. Right. I mean, there are things you can't explain. If he turns up, he turns up. But, you know, we're fine as we are. He's not going to. So, yeah, I'm not thinking about it because... Because he's not going to. to. If ghosts do exist, I think they wouldn't look how they looked when they when they died. They'd go back to how they looked in life. So, so Dad's ghost would have an arm. I wasn't sure what you would have perceived that as. It's interesting that now I'm sort of this far into this project, I've spoken to so many people and I still don't really have anything uh, to fill those holes with. Did Mark have a twin? Was there some sort of shady dealing on the part of the police? Was there was there a mistake in the identification? All of these questions are in the air, I think. I can't explain how that ghost then became a, a body that, that's been buried. That's a, a sort of a gap for me. I don't understand what he's talking about, how about how he doesn't want to talk about it. Right. I mean, he's got two dads, essentially. I've kind of decided to frame the show as if it's fiction. Isn't this just, like, upsetting everybody all over again? Like, it's, you know, it's not very nice. I think God does move in mysterious ways. There are things that are in some ways beyond our understanding, I think, and are nevertheless true. For more information about the show, go to thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk. It's too much for one person to puzzle out by himself. I don't have answers. I don't know.